Well, hello, welcome. If I don't know you, uh, my name is Preston. I'm one of the pastors here at St. Peter's Fireside, and it is a delight to see you all here today again and uh, worship with you. You made it even on our first rainiest Sunday of uh, the fall, so I'm excited that you're still here. You're still leaving these two front rows open, so I'm still hoping all you people in the back will again migrate forward eventually and not leave me so lonely up here. Um, but uh, at any rate, great to see you all. Um, before I start preaching, I just wanted to take a moment and uh, say the, uh, and recognize this Thursday upcoming is a big day in Canada. It's Truth and Reconciliation Day. And this is, if you don't know, when everyone in Canada uh, is called to stop and reflect on the history of, uh, for us especially, of the relationship between First Nations peoples and uh, settler nations in Canada, and for us especially, the church and what that, what that means. Um, if you were around St. Pete's over the summer, you may have remembered that there was a short survey done in the, in the congregation um, to gauge our understanding of truth and reconciliation in Canada and the commission um, and the church's role in this conversation, and also to just see the interest the, conversation, the congregation has to engage in that and what that could look like here. So today, because this is upcoming this week, I just wanted to give you a brief update about that. Um, First, the survey showed us that uh, no respondent who took the survey identified as First Nations, which reflects the demographic uh, at St. Pete's, at least of people who took the survey. It showed that there is some understanding of the TRC, but also not a strong grasp of the calls to action, uh, and, and particularly the calls to action towards churches. Some people know about these, but they're not super familiar with it. Um, it also shows that there's an interest from some to be to be very involved in reconciliation work, even though there's a low understanding. Um, as I was reading a little bit this week, I saw this quote from the Honorable uh, Justice Murray Sinclair, who was head of the TRC, and he said this, he said, education is what got us here, and education is what will get us out. Um, and to this end, we, as a leadership team, we've thought about that, and. Uh, some of our staff and leadership team have begun a course around this topic this fall uh, to better understand indigenous realities in Canada and in order to learn and to help us discern ways that may be fitting for St. Pete's to engage this um, if it, yeah, at some point in the future to, to know a little bit more. So if you would like to know more about edu education and kind of what we've, we're doing, um, or if you'd like to be really involved with this in the future, um, we'd like to know who you are, know about that, and so I'd ask you to email our people's warden, Jen Na, at peoples at sdpf.ca if you'd like to talk further with her or about that or no more. So with all that, I invite you to pray with me this morning. Living God, we come before you today and uh, we come hungry to hear from you, to be fed by you your spiritual food and drink. We, we are hungry for both your truth and your spirit of reconciliation in our hearts and our lives, uh, in our city. And we pray as we walk this week through different parts of Vancouver and pray that you will guide us and impress your, your goodness and your truth and your reconciliation on us. But now at this moment, we come to your word. We come to the gospel of Luke, which is truth itself and does express your reconciling heart for the world. And so we pray, will you open our eyes 
and our ears and our hearts to see you this morning in your word, in the gospel of Luke. We thank you for it. We pray, come Holy Spirit now and speak. Jesus, come now and speak. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, last week, uh, Lloyd brought us back into the Gospel of Luke after a long interlude. We'd put it down back in May, believe it or not, and we've done some different topics over the summer and intervening time. We spent some time in Exodus, which was wonderful, and so now we're back in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, and uh, Lloyd brought us to a table, to the table of Levi, the tax collector, who you may recall was not a very popular guy, being a tax collector. And as we enter back into this section of Luke, I just want to say I I get excited about these sections and parts of the Gospels because when we enter into these passages and these moments where we see Jesus having these everyday conversations with his followers and with skeptics and with opponents even and those who are just curious enough to listen in, uh, I think we stand on holy ground in these parts of the Gospels. We believe Jesus' presence is with us as Christians. That's what we're convicted about. And these accounts recorded by Luke and by the other Gospel writers and who have been transcribed for millennia uh, to get us to today, they give us glimpses of God's character and what is at the very heart of things in our universe. That's what they show us. And last week, we heard Jesus give the call, the simple call to Levi and to us, follow me, follow me, is what Jesus said. And then Levi throws a banquet at his house uh, where Jesus is a guest, and there's lots of other tax collectors and uh, what Luke calls sinners there. There's other people as well. And, And Lloyd showed us last week that as this conversation went at the table, it doesn't always remain uh, politically correct when Jesus is involved. People aren't scared to talk about hard things. What are those three things that you're not meant to talk about at dinner parties? Anyone remember? Yeah, religion, (laughs) politics, money. Money, I thought it was sex, but money works too. Don't talk about those at at your dinner party. Well, Jesus and the Pharisees don't abide by these rules. They at least get into religion and politics uh, in this conversation. And they bring, uh, the Pharisees bring some accusations against Jesus. And the first one we looked at last week, uh, they said, why do you eat with all these sinners? It's not appropriate. It's not fitting for a Jewish rabbi like yourself to be eating with all of these impure sinners. It's not the religious thing to do. Then in our passage today, another challenge comes at Jesus, another one. And, and he again makes the point today, that he isn't concerned about working within all of the religious norms and customs of the day. He isn't bound by them. He doesn't feel obligated to satisfy all these sorts of requirements. And in in this conversation, Jesus brings up an image, which we'll get to in a little bit, that shows us what he is, in fact, interested in. And we'll discover that that when we get there in a little bit. But the issue at hand that opens the door to this conversation is fasting, That's the number one thing that they start talking about. So if you have a Bible uh, or a phone with a Bible, I encourage you to follow along. And there's some like these out there in the lobby. If you don't have one, you're free to take one of these. Uh, They're for you. It can be a gift. Um, And Luke, our sermon texts are a little shorter than, say, when we were in Exodus, for example. And so we're looking kind of at closer details or um, shorter pieces of text. So it can help to, 
to have it in front of you. Uh, so, so do do that if you, if you have one. Uh, and we're going to start by looking at chapter 5, verse 33, which was read earlier, but um, we'll come back to it now. So Luke 5, 33, this is where we pick up the conversation at the table. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. That's John the Baptist. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. Well, it's, it's a passive accusation, isn't it? It's like an observation that's like cloaked as an, uh, as an accusation. Your disciples don't fast. The disciples of John the Baptist and that of the Pharisees, they're fasting all the time, but yours don't. They're out eating and drinking. Jesus, what's the deal? Why do they do this? Now, why would they ask this question? Why would they care? Like, why does this matter to them? Why does it come up? Well, the reason that, uh, that it comes up is that fasting uh, was big-time religious, religious currency in these days. If you were a religious right person, then you fasted a lot. And if, you're, if you're clueless right now about what I'm talking about, um, Fasting is a practice simply of abstaining from food or, or drink for a period of time for some greater purpose. Often it's a religious purpose, uh, but sometimes a humanitarian purpose or for something else. I did a couple fasts uh, earlier in my life called the 30-hour famine. Anyone familiar with that? Yep, it's a 30-hour fast. I did it as a youth group leader. Um, I think it's meant to raise, raise awareness about the hungry in the world from World Vision, but in my experience, I, I, I think it kind of got lost sometimes. It felt more of like an excuse to let teenagers stay up all night in a gym and play games and be really sweaty and smelly together. That was my experience, and we didn't eat, so it was <laughs> a very hungry experience with lots of middle schoolers. But in these days, if you were serious about following God, then you fasted. That was the way to show it. And in the Old Testament, uh, for a little context, God had given a, some commands about fasting. Um, for their calendar, for the annual calendar, there was only one day of the year that God commanded the people to fast, just one. However, by this point in, in, um, in the history of the Jewish people, there were four day-long fasts on the Jewish calendar annually. And fasting was a practice that was undertaken, um, it, was always a, it was always a practice undertaken in a time of longing for God to act, or looking for God to come intervene again, or also looking back to a time when God had acted, and, and remembering when he'd been very present and moved in a powerful way. That was sort of the spirit of how people entered into fasting, looking for God again, or remembering when he had been really present. The point is that at the moment of fasting, the, the, the person isn't really seeing God's hand at work powerfully right then. So they're looking back to when God had acted, or they're looking forward, hoping he, he comes again and, and works in a particular way. But the Pharisees took all of this to another level. In addition to the four annual fasts, they were doing it twice a week. So traditionally on Mondays and Thursdays, the Pharisees were fasting. It's a lot of fasting. God never commanded this. And Jesus thought it was excessive, and he took issue with it. He didn't do it. He didn't ask his disciples to do all this fasting, as he's accused of here. Uh, he didn't get on this Monday and, and Thursday business. So what was his issue with fasting? It's a good place to start. What was Jesus' concern? 
The Pharisees were looked to as uh, the number one spiritual guides, as the sages of spirituality for the Jews. They had all the best-selling books on Jewish spirituality. They had the number one podcasts on how to be a good Jewish spiritual person. If you wondered how to, how to be a, a good follower of God in these days, you looked at the Pharisees. They were the teachers, and uh, they were the guides. So Jesus knew, and Jesus was saying that what they're putting forth is what's most important to God is wrong, is false. It was giving the wrong idea about what God really cared about. They were off the mark in a couple ways. Uh, one way we can think back to uh, Isaiah, the prophet, uh, Isaiah the prophet. In chapter 58, Isaiah rebukes God's people for fasting and putting on sackcloth, yet neglecting what he calls the true fast that God desires, to give food to the hungry and clothe the poor. And it's not, it's not hard to see how the pattern modeled by the Pharisees here, fasting every Monday and every Thursday, for most people, most working class people, was not feasible. Fasting twice a week means that you have the leisure time and the disposable income to allow this practice, doesn't it? And in these days, most people were living hand to mouth, getting enough, food, enough money to buy food just for the day. Most people were malnourished anyways, most of the time, and at risk of starvation on most weeks if they, didn't, uh, if they missed eating for a couple days was common. And most people didn't in, were doing backbreaking work during the week. So you can imagine what it would be like to fast twice a week in this sort of condition. It just wasn't feasible or realistic for most people. But it gave the Pharisees prominence. It gave them visibility. And all of this gave them power. The Pharisees created this expectation that this is what it took to please God. This is what super holiness spirituality looks like. This is what you need to do. And it created a false idea of what holiness means and of what God desires for us to do. Jesus would have none of this. But there was also a, another issue, and Jesus speaks to it in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. I got to flip over there for a second. So Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 to 18, Jesus says this, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret." And your father who is in secret will reward you. Well, two observations. One, Jesus gives instructions about how to fast here, doesn't he? Wash your face, clean up, anoint your head with oil, take a shower. No one else needs to know that you're fasting except for God. This tells us that first, Jesus isn't anti-fasting on the whole. He's not questioning the presence of fasting in the spiritual life. He's not even doubting that at some times it's necessary. He teaches how to fast. And he himself, we can remember, fasted for 40 days in the desert. What Jesus is questioning here is the rationale, the why, the rationale, the motivation, the reasoning, the situation on the inside of a person that's driving the outward action. And if you read this Sermon on the Mount that I just read from, the whole thing, Matthew 5 to 7, you'll see that this is constantly what Jesus returns to 
and even more broadly in his teaching. Actions matter, yes, but Jesus is really interested in what's going on and the why in the person's heart, the rationale. Jesus will go on to explain in, in the Luke passage why his disciples aren't fasting, and we'll get there in a moment. But the second observation here in Matthew 6 is that Jesus also calls out the hypocrites who look gloomy and disfigure their faces while they fast. I wonder what this looked like. Uh, It's something that Jesus is calling out almost embarrassingly to the people who are there, I'm sure, right there. And it's a self-centered rationale for fasting, kind of like that. I mean, you know that face that you put on when you were just having a bad day? And you want everyone that you meet and encounter on the street and your family or friends to know that you're having a bad day. Like, this is the face. And maybe you want some pity pity for it, or maybe you just want to get in a fight with someone, and so you put on your grumpy face. Something like this was happening. Again, I don't know exactly what it looked like for the Pharisees, but they were looking gloomy every Monday and every Thursday. And Jesus says, this is ridiculous. I've had enough. Like, this is just not the intention... Um, you've gotten all the attention for your fasting, and that is your award. You've gotten it, and that's it. Jesus, he rejects this overly mournful, somber spirituality as the standard or the go-to for life with God. There's not much joy of the Lord in this, is there? And that's why he says, when you fast, no one else needs to know. Anoint your head with oil. Go about your day. Wash up. And let your fast create a fresh space of prayer for the Lord inside you. Again, no one else needs to know. This isn't about attention. Maybe some of you, I don't know, maybe you've been a part of church communities or uh, um, churches in the past where this was the norm, where every Sunday gathering or time felt more like a place to just mourn or to be at a funeral. I remember one time um, a person said to me that they never understood communion growing up in their church because it felt like once a month they had a mini funeral for Jesus at the end of the service. And it was so somber and just like everyone was just sad, but he never knew why. It's sad. It's missed, right? This is what Mark Twain was attacking when he famously said, if Jesus Christ were here today, there's one thing he would not be, a Christian. And if your only experience of Christian faith is that, this kind of cold devoid of celebration, depressing spirit, then no, Jesus isn't all about that. That's what he's getting at here. Jesus absolutely has space for suffering. We know this. And he opens his wounded hands and and arms to those who are suffering. That's different than this. But the paradigm he gives for what Christian spirituality and what life with God is like is very different It looks altogether different, and he frames what life with God looks like in a whole new way with how he responds right here in verses 34 and 35. So let's look at those together. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Can you imagine fasting at a wedding, Jesus says? I mean, you all, can you think of a more inappropriate place to fast? Just think about the last wedding you went to. 
Maybe it was a long, long time ago, back in 2019. I don't know. Maybe you've managed to go to one. Maybe, maybe you've been married in the last couple of years. But whenever it was, think back to that time. Can you picture being at this wedding celebration that uh, you were at? Maybe friends or family getting married. It's this time of celebration. And everyone around you is at a feast and eating and all the rest. And, and you're fasting. You're just choosing not to engage. It just doesn't fit, does it? Because the tone of a wedding is celebration and joy. And, that's, uh, and Jesus says, this is the new paradigm for life with God. A wedding. You know, when I officiate wedding ceremonies, I love uh, bringing people to God's heart for weddings. And again, in the prophet Isaiah, in chapter six, 62, verse 5, it says, As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride so will your God rejoice over you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And by picking up this imagery right here, as Jesus does, uh, of a lover at a wedding, it's used throughout scripture, but Jesus picks it up here. Jesus is saying, God will rejoice over you as a bridegroom does over a bride saying to you, God will rejoice over you as a bridegroom does to a bride. That's the, new, that's the new paradigm for the spiritual life. That's the new fallback for the spiritual life. So on any, any given day, when you're not sure where you're at with God, when you may be feeling a little lost or distant, and you're thinking, what is, what is this all about? This is, this is how God sees you. This is the paradigm for the spiritual life you're delighted in. Is that how you think about your spiritual life? Is that the default, the fallback? You know that moment at a wedding uh, when the bride starts coming down the aisle and then everyone wants to turn and look and see the groom's face to see what's, what it's looking like, to see the delight, hopefully. <laughs> it's always been delight in my experience, to be clear. <laughs> That's how God rejoices over you. That's what Christian spirituality is meant to feel like not always about feelings. I'm not saying that, but that's the, that's the space, the context that it's meant to be characterized by, delighted in, delighting in God and being delighted in by God, by a lover God. And on this day, uh, when Jesus is talking with these Pharisees, he's saying, guess what? Guess what, friends? The bridegroom is here, like literally here, standing here, right, in, right here in your midst. Right now, here I am. The bridegroom is here. Let's think about weddings for one more moment. A wedding is a joyful witness to divine love. It points to God's love that stretches beyond the world and that he has for people. And that's why they're celebrations again. That's why they're effusive celebrations and why we wear nice clothes and throw big parties and have a feast and all the rest because it's beautiful when we see people committing themselves in a covenant of love to one another sacrificially. And Jesus is saying, friends, the wedding is happening right here, right now. Open your eyes. I'm here. I'm the bridegroom. God's plan of salvation is unfolding right now. It's here because I am here. This is it. It's happening. Jesus' disciples weren't fasting because Jesus was with them and was present with them. 
because he is Emmanuel, God with you, God with us. This is Jesus' rationale. This is the why for why they aren't fasting. And the why always matters. So right here, also, Jesus gives us a rationale for everything that you might think of as a spiritual practice or discipline or anything that you do in your life that you deem spiritual or an attempt to connect with God. Fasting or prayer or reading or worship or whatever other practices you may have. What matters in all of these is Jesus himself, the bridegroom. And our practices must always be first and foremost about coming to him, about opening ourselves to Jesus, so with walking with him, becoming people who live like him as he has invited you to today. That's what practices are about, that connecting point with Jesus by the Holy Spirit. They're not about getting good at the practice itself. It's about connecting with God. So think about those things that you might consider spiritual practices or attempts to connect with God in your life, if this is something you do. What's your rationale? Why do you do them? Do you read scripture maybe to read or to listen for the voice of the author? Do you come to church like this out of obligation or to immerse yourself in the true story of the world? of the kingdom of God, to inquire into that, maybe? Do you serve the poor or engage in social justice in order to look a certain way or be seen as a certain type of person? Or to walk humbly with Jesus, who is near to the weak and who tells us to do our service out of sight from others? All of our actions have to be sifted this way because our hearts easily deceive us, don't they, into prideful ways of living and engaging these things. But lastly, notice that Jesus does make a provision, even in the text, for fasting in the future, in a really dark turn of the, meta- of the metaphor. In verse 35, he says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. A bridegroom taken from a wedding. It's not a nice image. And it's a foreshadow that Jesus gives to his death. There will be times for fasting to come. We live in an in-between time, even now, where the wedding vows have been made. God has made those vows. He's given his life for us. He's come and he's died and he's made that covenant in blood. But the full banquet feast is not yet here. And we wait for this and in seasons of longing, or repentance, or for specific calls to prayer, we do fast. It can be appropriate. And so far as it leads us towards the bridegroom, towards Jesus himself. I want to lastly look just a little bit at where Jesus takes the conversation from here. So let's jump to verses 36 to 39. Jesus then, uh, well, Luke tells us, he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. 
for he says, the old is good. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? This might sound very cryptic to you, just hearing it like that off of the first time. Luke says he tells two parables, which we normally think of as short stories, but these are more like object lessons or something, aren't they? Um, and you're, if, if you are confused, you're not alone. I was confused too when I read this again this week and thought, what is Jesus talking about? And even as I studied it more and uh, tried to understand more fully what he's getting at, I learned that some of even the best scholars on Luke's gospel disagree on exactly what Jesus is getting at. So I won't go into the weeds on all that, but I'll give you a little bit of guidance. Jesus is drawing a distinction between older ways and newer ways of life with God. And first, he gives a sewing lesson. Jesus says, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. So what he, the point he's getting at is that the new way of living with God again, where the primary guiding image is that of a wedding feast, isn't compatible with the old. It doesn't quite fit. The two will tear if you try to jam them together. He's saying now that Jesus is here, he's done something new, something fully new, something qualitatively new, different than what's been done before. It's not just repackaging the same old stuff and selling it again as a different product. This is new, and it just won't fit with the old. He then goes to talk about wine. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must go into fresh wineskins. And no, and no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. Again, there's a distinction between old and new. The Old and New Testaments show us wine as a symbol of God's delight, of God's blessing, a marker of God's favor. And I, I think we have to be careful when we read this uh, passage not to read this as Jesus just lambasting the old ways of his, as if to fully discard everything that came before him, um, the law that given to Moses and all the rest. Because Jesus is very clear in Matthew 5, that he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. So what do we do with this? He's saying that, yes, there is something new happening in me that I'm giving this life in the spirit that won't fit with the old, that will burst the old wineskins. You got to be open to the new things that God is doing here. It's a wedding feast. But there's also a paradox because Jesus ends by saying, everyone knows that old wine is good. And this was just a common aphorism, common knowledge uh, of that day and today as well. Generally, you would say old wine is better than new. I think Jesus is telling us this, that we need our story. We need God's story. The different times and places and ages that God has interacted with his people and in our own lives. The old, God works in these stories. They're important to know and remember. Old wine is good. We draw much from it. But, but also, and also, the new wine of what God has done in Christ, of the exclusive relationship, exclusive love relationship that looks like a wedding feast, is, is a gift, and it can't be contained in old wineskins. It's new. We need something new to receive it. We need a new heart to receive it. 
And it's radically new, this relationship, this life that Jesus offers, that he brings, that he brings a right rationale for how to understand our lives, for, for you to how to understand your life, your story, all of it, it's new. And we need that gift of the Spirit to reframe and give us eyes to see what God is doing and what maybe what he has done in the past. So as we close up today, I, I want to pray together. So will you enter into prayer with me? And I want to sit for a moment with that image of the wedding feast of God as the lover God and that you are delighted over and he delights in you. You are called to delight in him. You are gifted to delight in him. This is the image of the spiritual life. And take a moment and ask the Lord, what does this mean? What does this image mean for my story, my past, maybe my hopes for the, for the future? Maybe this isn't how you've thought about your life with God. How does this shift things? Ask him. If this is the guiding thing, if this is what it looks like to know you, how does everything else settle down? How does the old in my past, how does the story change? We come to you today, Holy Spirit, and Pray that you will speak this truth into each heart, each mind. You refresh us with this good news that we are delighted in. That you're a God who has invited us to a wedding banquet, a wedding feast. And that's what life looks like with you. Teach us today how to receive this, how to live into it. We pray all this. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.